this lesson, we'll have a series of geometric diagrams, and we'll give you some information in the drawing, and we'll have to calculate the numeric value of an angle. Now, I'll tell you right now that all of these problems really only require addition and subtraction to solve them. So they'll be very easy for you just to subtract and add, no problem. But we're going to write down the solutions kind of as an equation and use an equation to solve it, even though you could just skip ahead to just straight subtraction, because I want you to practice your equation skills. So when you look at these, you might say, oh, I could, I could just do this. That's fine, but I also want you to, to get practice solving equations. So here's our first, uh, our first question. We have this diagram here. We have two kind of lines that go on and forever and ever in both directions. So we have this angle here of 120, and we're trying to find the angle x. Now remember, we learned about vertical angles. Anytime you have an x or a plus, the opposite angles there on either side are equal. So these angles are actually equal to each other. So without doing any math at all, you know that the angle x has to be 120 degrees. There's nothing to add or subtract because you know they're equal. And just as an aside, these angles here are also the same. You can see that they look to be about the same as well. So opposite angles uh, in a situation like this, we call them vertical. And so we know the answer is 120 without any further work. All right, let's take a look at problem number two. We have this situation. It's very similar. In fact, it's the same drawing, except now we have angle Y over here. And we're trying to figure out what is the angle Y. Now, you need to start getting in the habit of seeing, when you see these straight lines that are broken up by another segment or a line, these are what we call supplementary to each other. They add up to 180 degrees. And you know this because any angle on a straight line from one side to the other has to be 180 degrees. So this plus this has to be 180. So in equation form, what you would say is 120 plus whatever y is in degrees has to equal 180 degrees. This is what it means to be supplementary. Now, in order to solve this, we'll just uh, kind of spread it out a little bit and ask ourselves, how do we get y by itself? Well, we have a positive 120, so we'll subtract 120 from the left and subtract 120 from the right. And on the left, of course, the 120 minus 120 is 0, so all we have left is y. And 180 minus 20 is 60 degrees. So just put 60 and the, the uh, unit is degrees. So 60 degrees. So this is what I, what I was saying a minute ago. You can just solve these with subtraction. You know that this has to be a large angle of 180. Subtract this away, minus the 120, has to be what you have left. So you can do that, but I am writing them in terms of equations and subtracting from both sides because I want you to get practice with, uh, with this kind of procedure with equations. All right, so 60 degrees, that was the answer there. Let's take a look at problem number three. What is the measure of angle K here? Now, at first, you're not really sure what to do because K is way off by itself, and you don't really know anything about what's going on over here, but you need to learn how to read geometric diagrams. When you see, like, an angle marking here, and then there's, like, another angle marking there, uh, and if it's a true geometric diagram, it's like, you know, congruency marks when you want to tell, you, when you, when you tell me that the length of the sides are the same, you put a little mark on the sides. Well, for angles, if you put a little mark here or a little angle arc and it matches the angle mark here, then you can assume those to be equal if it's a, a proper geometric drawing in, in this case. So what you know is that this is 134 degrees, but even though it's not written there, you know that this is also 134 degrees. So then how do you find K? Well, this must be a total of 180. So what you say is K, whatever it is, plus 134 must equal 180 because this plus this must then be 180. So then you just solve it. So K plus 134 equals 180. And then we'll just subtract 134. 
subtract 134. And what we will get on the left is k, because this just disappears, k is going to be equal to 46 degrees. Circle that. So 46 degrees. And you can check it by putting 46 back in here. The 6 and the 4 would make, bring it up to 140, and the 140 plus the additional 40 is 180, so that is the correct answer. Let me take these down. We have a few more problems in this lesson. All right, here is problem number four. We have this kind of rectangle here, but we have a rectangle where corner to corner it is sliced in half here, and we're trying to find angle J. So on the diagram, that is this uh, angle measured from this uh, uh, segment here over to this one. So this is angle J. If you need to visualize it, you can kind of draw a little arc like that. That's angle J. Now, what do we do? We know that these corners here, these little squares, indicate 90 degree angles. So up here, what it means is 32 degrees plus Whatever J happens to be must be equal to 90. So these are complementary angles. Remember, supplementary means they add to 180, but complementary means they add to 90, and these have to add to 90. So we say 32 plus whatever J is has to be 90 degrees. Right? So we'll rewrite it. 32 plus J is 90. Now, in order to get J by itself, we'll subtract 32 from the left. We'll subtract 32 from the right. And the, this will be 0, so we'll just have J by itself. What is 90 minus 32? That is 58 degrees. And you can check it by putting 58 back in here and adding it to 32. If you add put 58, the 2 will make 60, and then 70, 80, 90. And so that makes sense. So the answer is 58 degrees for J, 58 degrees. All right, let's take a look at problem number 5. What is the measure of angle W, right? So this angle from this ray down here. Well, we know that this from this side of a line all the way to the other side must be 180. So these are supplementary angles. They add to 180. So 109, right, plus whatever W is has to be the same as 180, right? But we want to get W by itself. So we subtract 109, subtract 109. And the only thing you'll have left is a, because this goes to 0, W. And then what is a 180 minus 109? You get an answer of 71 degrees. So 71 degrees. Check yourself. If you put 71 in here and add to 109, the 1 will make 110. And then 70 more will make 180. And you know the whole thing has to be 180 degrees. This is actually why we learn about complementary and supplementary angles, because it helps us solve problems, uh, because we geometrically know it has to add to 180, and so we have we define those terms for that reason. All right, let's take a look at this problem. What is angle P? That is this angle right here between the rays. Now, it may be a little hard to see. You may have to turn your head sideways, but this is a line, and the angle that goes from this side all the way to the other side, again, has to be 180. So when you add this angle plus this angle, it must be 180. 143 plus whatever P is has to be 180. So 143, just spread it out so I have a little room. How do I get P by itself? I'm just going to subtract 143. Subtract 143. All I'll have left on the left is P because this goes to 0. And what is 180 minus 143? 37 degrees. So 37 degrees. You can check it by putting it back in here. The 7 going in here will make 150, and then 160, 70, 80 with 30 more. And that's the final answer. All right, here is number seven. Now this is what, where it starts to get a little more useful to write things as an equation, because you're trying to find angle Z, but this looks like a totally different situation 
than what we have covered before. We have lots of situations where we've had just a line and it's cut in one place and we know they add to 180. So at first you look at this and you're not totally sure what to do until you realize that this must all be 180 degrees. So this angle plus Z, whatever it is, plus 73, all of them together must equal 180. So 68 plus whatever Z is plus 73 must all together add up to 180 degrees. All right. Now, when you add 78 and 60, uh, si sorry, 68 and 73 together, you're going to get 141. Right. So how do we solve for Z? Just spread it out. And I can do what I want to both sides. So I'm going to subtract 141. 141 from the left, 141 from the right. So it disappears here. So Z is going to be equal to 180 minus uh, 141, 39 degrees. So 39 degrees. And you can check yourself because we just figured out that these two together, when we add them together, comes out to 141. So if you put 39 in there and add it to this, it'll be the 9 will go in and make 150. And then 160, 70, 80, 180 when you add that 30 more. So it's 39 degrees. Let me take this one down. We have one more and call it a day. Okay, here's our very last problem. We're asked to find the measure of angle G. But it looks a little weird because on this side over here, we don't really have any other numbers. But what we have figured out is that there's a couple of different ways to tackle this, right? First of all, you notice that this is 90 degrees, right? So the whole thing is 90 degrees because of the square right here. So we could find G if we only knew what this angle was. But we, it's not really written here. But then we realize, wait a minute, it has an angle marking. And over here has another angle marking. So because this angle marking matches this one, we know that this angle is the same as this angle. In fact, it looks to be about the same, doesn't it? So actually, this 41 degrees is the same as this one down here, 41 degrees. And you know that because of the angle marking here, right? Now that you know that this is 141 degrees, you can write down that 41 degrees plus whatever G is has to equal what? 90, because this is a 90 degree angle. So we'll just solve that equation. How do we do it? Well, let's just subtract 41. This gives you zero, so all you have is G. 90 minus 41 comes out to be 49 degrees. 49 degrees. And double check yourself. You put 49 in here, and you add one more, that'll be 50. And then the 50 plus the 40 left over is in the 90, and so you verified that it is 49 degrees. So this lesson was kind of, you know, it's kind of an all-around measuring angle, calculating angle kind of lesson. You know, it's kind of a, a hodgepodge of lots of different things. Basically, what we have is situations where we draw figures and I ask you to calculate the angle. And as I said at the beginning, you can solve all of these by addition and subtraction. If you look back through all of them, they're all solved by taking 180 minus or 90 minus, and you can do it that way. But I like to write the equations down, especially now that we've done it so much, so that you can practice writing equations down. Because this kind of thing, you'll be surprised when we get into classes down the road in physics where the problem is easy to solve, but it, it, the student can't get there because they don't know how to write an equation down. So we have to start with simple situations where, you know, this plus this has to equal 90 and solve it. And this plus this has to equal 180 and solve it. Because later on when we're in physics and we have a motion of a ball and a force, then we have to write an equation. This plus this has to equal this. And that skill of looking at a situation, a drawing that you sketch or that I give you, 
and writing down an equation is just as important as learning how to solve the equations. So even though these seem simple, I do want you to solve them by writing an equation. You're going to have to trust me that that skill will serve you well going down the road in your future studies. So practice these. We have more like this in part two, so follow me on. We'll conquer it right now. Hello, welcome back. The title of this lesson is called, What is a Logarithm? Or I could retitle this thing, Logarithms Explained, or Understanding Logarithms. This is part one of several lessons on logarithms. A logarithm is one of the most important functions in all of science, in all of math. And I know I say this a lot, but really I'm trying to emphasize when I'm really trying to tell you things that are extremely important. And you'll run into logarithms in your chemistry classes, you'll run into logarithms in all of your physics classes, any engineering class, any math class, you're going to run into logarithms. So it's not every day I can teach you about a function this important. I remember the very first time I uh, got introduced to using a logarithm in a chemistry class. I went up to the teacher because the pH scale, you've probably heard of pH in chemistry, has logarithm in its definition. It's the negative logarithm of hydrogen ions in a solution. That's a crazy, complicated sounding thing, but basically it's the logarithm of a number, right? And so I went to the teacher and I said, what does this mean, logarithm of hydrogen? What does log log mean, right? And she said, well, that's a button on your calculator. And I love this teacher. She's a fantastic teacher, but she didn't understand at a fundamental detailed level what a logarithm was. For her, it was just a button on the calculator to calculate things. I want to go beyond that with you. I want you to understand what a logarithm is. I want you to know intuitively why we have logarithms and why they so naturally fall out of math. Because the knowledge that you gain in this lesson will be applied to many, many, many courses down the road. All right. So before I get into what a logarithm is, I want to give you a little motivation. Just two examples. I already mentioned the first one, the famous pH scale, acids and bases. It's so fundamental to chemistry. It's a logarithmic scale. So logarithms come into play anytime you calculate anything to do with pH concentrations in chemistry. Right? Another very famous example is the Richter scale of, of, uh, of uh, earthquake energy. You know, you have a, uh, we say an earthquake was a 6.2 on the Richter scale. Earthquake was a 7.3 on the Richter scale. Earthquake was a 1.2 on the Richter scale. What does that mean? Well, a Richter scale is a logarithmic scale. So by the end of this lesson, I want you to understand what a log is, but also why do we use them for these scales? Why don't we just use numbers? Why do we have to use logs? So by the end of this, you're going to understand all of that. <clears throat> There are many other examples of logarithms. I could go on and on. In electrical engineering, we use them to plot uh, frequency response of amplifiers and mechanical systems. There's tons of, uh, of, of uses for logs. But for now, we want to go and learn what a log actually is. So in a nutshell, this is what a logarithm is. A logarithm is the inverse function of the exponential function, of an exponential function that we've already learned about. So I already told you exponentials are so incredibly important, and they are. So the inverse of those functions, which you've already learned inverses in the last lessons, the inverse of exponential functions is what we call a logarithm. That's why logs are so important, because exponentials are also so important, and they go together like peanut butter and jelly, basically. All right, so that's so important. I actually want to write that down. If you pull anything out of this, I want you to pull this, a logarithm is the inverse, the inverse function of an exponential function. I don't always write definitions out, but this one's extremely important. So I'm going to keep that in the top. It's the inverse function. And if you remember, what is an inverse function? We already talked about that in the last lesson. 
inverse functions go together like peanut butter and jelly because inverse functions can undo each other. If I have function number one and function number two and we know that they're inverses of each other, if I run a number through the function, calculate the answer, take that answer and put it through the next function and calculate that answer, the number I get out is going to be exactly the same as what I started with because the inverse function kind of undid or did the opposite calculation of what the first function did. So if I stick a one onto the input function, get the intermediate, run it through the second function, I'm going to get a one on the output. If I put a 2 on the input, I'll get a 2 on the output of the inverse. If I put a negative 5 on the input and run it through both functions, I'll get a negative 5 on the output. Whatever I put on the, on the input, I'm going to get it on the output because the inverse undoes it. And that's not a technical word, it's my word, but it's a good word to use. So we know that a log, so you can use the full word logarithm or you could just use the word log, uh, can, quote, undo an exponential. So remember what an exponential function is, like 2 to the power of x or 3 to the power of x, right? If we run the number through that exponential function, take the output, and then stick it through the same uh, similar logarithm, the inverse function, we'll get exactly the same thing as we started with because it undoes or it does the opposite of that exponential function, right? One of the biggest, biggest, biggest uses of logarithms is we can use to solve exponential whoops, equations. I hate it whenever you look in a book and it explains what something is, but you have no idea why it's useful or even if it's very important. This one's super important because we can use logarithms to solve equations that have exponentials in them. Why? Because every equation we solve, we always have to do the opposite, right? The opposite operation to get the variable by itself. If you add something to the variable, you might do the opposite. You might subtract. That's, by the way, an inverse kind of operation. If you multiply in the equation, then you might have to divide to get x by itself. If you have a square, you might do the opposite, a square root, right? It's, we've been doing this forever, right? But now that we know what an exponential function is, we might often have to do the opposite of that thing to get the variable by itself. The opposite is going to be what we call the logarithm. So that's why logs, one of the reasons why logs are so important. Now here's our roadmap. I'm going to write down the definition of a logarithm. We're going to work a few very simple problems so you know how to handle it. And then we're going to draw some graphs to show you that the inverse of an exponential really is a logarithm and what the graph of a logarithm looks like. And then at the end of the lesson, I'm going to go into a lot more detail about why we use logarithms and the Richter scale and pH and some other applications because I want you to understand why we care because that's really the point of this thing. So here we have enough space. Let's go ahead and write down the definition of the logarithm. So here's what a logarithm is. A logarithm is the following thing. And I know it's a mathematical weird definition. I'm going to make it very clear for you. If the number b, this is a letter, but we're going to call it a number b, and the number n are positive numbers with uh, b not being equal to 1, because b is going to end up becoming the base of the logarithm. And we already know that the base of an exponential can't be 1, because we talked about if you have a 1 as a base, you don't have an exponential function anymore. But anyway, if we have these two numbers, b and n, they're both positive, but they can't be equal to 1. Base can't be equal to 1. Then we say that the logarithm, using the base b, of the number n is equal to k. right? And this is if, well, let's do it like this. 
if and only if, if I can spell only, if and only if, b to the power of k is equal to n. So here is the definition of the logarithm. I'm going to leave it on the board because we'll reference it a lot. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense when you see all this jibber-jabber everywhere, but I'm going to make it very clear. What I want you to understand, first of all, is that here is kind of a relation that involves this logarithm. I want you first to understand that the logarithm has a base. Here we put the letter b there, but in real life, they're not letters. The bases of logarithms are just like the bases of exponentials. For an exponential, remember the base was the number on the bottom, 2 to the power of x. The base was 2. 10 to the power of x. The base was 10. 5 to the power of x. That's an exponential. The base was 5. So for logarithms, we have bases also. So you might have logarithm with a base 2, logarithm with a base 5, logarithm with a base 10. Why do you have to have bases for logarithms? Well, it's because it's an inverse of the exponential function. So, of course, if the exponential has a as a base to determine the shape, and if I'm just reflecting that graph over to find its inverse, that's what an inverse is, then the inverse, which is the logarithm, also has to have a base. And it's the same base as the exponential function that you are talking about. So we have an exponential uh, logarithm base here. So what we have is a logarithm with a base of some number equals some other number. And the relationship of all this means you take the base to the power of whatever you have on the right-hand side, we're calling it k, is equal to some number. All I want you to know about this definition right now is that logarithms can be transformed into exponentials because you have the same things here, b, n, and k, b, n, and k. And these exponentials can be transformed into logarithms, b, k, and n, b, k, and n. So anytime you have an exponential, you can always write it as a logarithm. And anytime you have a logarithm, you can always write it as an exponential because they're inverses of each other. All right. So let's go through a couple of, of very simple uh, problems that you'll understand very quickly, and then we'll ratchet up the complexity as we go, to make, and we'll draw some pictures to make sure you really understand. Let's say a real-life example. Let's say we have the logarithm, if I can spell logarithm, the logarithm, base 2 of the number 8. How would we calculate this? Well, we have a base 2, and we're taking the logarithm of 8. Here is what you do to translate logarithms you always have to translate them into an exponential because they basically can always be written in terms of exponentials. So what you do is you say the following thing. Okay? You say the base, write that, to the power of some number, I don't know what it is, x, is equal to 8. 2 to the power of whatever the answer is that I'm trying to calculate here, that's what I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find the exponent, is equal to whatever the logarithm that you have here is. Now let me ask you, how would you figure this out? What is the exponent here that makes 2 to the power of that exponent 8? Well, this means that x has to be equal to 3. Sorry, x has to be equal to, if I can write it correctly, 3. How do I know that? Because 2 to the third power is 8. 2 times 2 times 2 is 8. So what I've basically said here, and just stay with me, is that the logarithm, base 2, of the number 8 is equal to 3. And the reason I know that this thing is equal to 3 is because... Because, I'm going to triple underline it, it's because 2, which is the base, to the power of 3 on the right-hand side of the equal sign equals 8. 2 to the power of 3 is equal to 8. I'm going to run my fingers a few times. 2 to the power of 3 is 8. 2 to the power of 3 is 8. 2 to the power of 3 is 8. That is going to be how you translate logarithms every time you write them down. You say base to the power of what the thing is equal to is equal to 8. The thing you're trying to find in a logarithm, the thing that the logarithm gives back to you, is the exponent required to calculate this number. 
the, I'm going to say that one more time because this is the kind of thing that you learn after you do a lot of problems but is often not really told to you. The logarithm as its output gives back to you what exponent is needed to make this thing equal to 8 when I use this base. That is why logarithms and exponents are inverses. Look how I took this logarithm and I write it as an exponential expression. 2 to the power of 3 is 8. This is an equality here. 2 to the power of 3 is 8. Right? I can also start with this and go backwards. I can write this as a logarithm for the same reason. The base is 2 of the number 8. The exponent 3 is what's coming back. So you're often converting back and forth between exponential form and logarithmic form. You have to get used to that. So let's do a couple more of these to make 100% sure that you are getting comfortable with it because it's the most important thing. Okay? Let's say I have the logarithm base 2, and remember this base can be any number other than 1, but I'm just using 2 here, of the number 16. How would I figure out what the base, um, lo uh, the logarithm base 2 logarithm of 16, how would I figure out what that is? Well, I have to write a little equation to figure out what that is. I know that the base of this thing to the power of something that this logarithm is going to equal is going to have to equal 16. Because logarithms return the exponent, it returns an exponent back to you. That's what logarithms do. And I'm going to say it a few times, because I want you to remember that. Logarithms give you back an exponent. So 2 to the power of some exponent, that's going to be what this log is equal to, is equal to 16. Now, if you run through it, it can't be 2 squared, it can't be 2 cubed. X has to be equal to 4, because 2 to the 4th power is actually 16. So another way of writing this is the log base 2 of 16 is equal to 4, because, triple underline, the reason this is true is because 2 to the power of this exponent that the logarithm gave me back is actually equal to 16. You see, we're following the same recipe in both of these examples. 2 to the 3rd power is 8. That means logarithm base 2 of 8 is 3. The logarithm gave me back the exponent that's needed when I raise 2 to that exponent to give me this. And I can write it in an exponent form like this. This one is 2 to the power of 4 is 16. 2 to the power of 4 is 16. That means the logarithm gave me back the exponent needed. So I raised two, the base to that exponent to give me that number. So it's literally a reverse exponent, a, a, inverse, a reverse exponential function. The exponential function is the base to the power of some uh, of an exponent. The logarithm is like, okay, here's your base. Here's the final number that I want you to, to kind of have. Tell me what exponent is needed to give me that number. That's what the logarithm does. It gives you the exponent back. So you have to get in the use of saying 2 to the power of whatever's on the other side of the equal sign equals this. 2 to the power of whatever's on the other side of the equal sign equals this. I'm saying it a lot of times because it's literally the most important thing in this whole lesson. Right? Let's take a look at another one. What about the log base 2 of the number 1? What would that equal to? Well, I'm going to show you that that's going to be equal to 0. How do I know it's equal to 0? Well, it's because of the following thing. Because the base to the power of this exponent that the log gave me back is equal to whatever I'm taking the logarithm of. And I know that this is true because anything to the 0 power is 1. Right? Make sure you understand that. Every time, base to the power of this is equal to this. That's exactly what I wrote. What if I have the logarithm base 2 of the number 1 half is equal to negative 1. How do I know this is true? Well, I know it's true because the base to the power of negative 1 is going to be equal to whatever I was taking the logarithm was. Remember, the logarithm gave me the power back. And you know that this is true because 2 to the 1 half means I can drop it in the denominator and make it a positive power. Right? 
And so if I want to generalize this whole thing, 2 to the power of 3 is 8, 2 to the power of 4 is 16, 2 to the power of 0 is 1, 2 to the power of negative 1 is 1 half, I can generalize it. And I can say that the log uh, base 2 of the number n is equal to k. And that's because 2 to the exponent k is equal to whatever this number I was taking the logarithm uh, what of. And don't forget that this base, and this, in all of these cases I'm using the number 2, but the base can be 3, the base can be 4, the base can be 10. The base can not be negative, though, because remember, we go back to our definition. If b and n are positive numbers, but the base can't be 1, why can't the base be 1? The base can't be 1 because if you have 1 as the base of an exponential, then you don't have an exponential at all. 1 to the power of anything is just 1. And you can't have negatives for the base for the reasons we talked about in the exponential function because you don't have an exponential function there either. Go back to the lesson on exponentials if you forget that. So the base has to be the same kind of base as an exponential function. It has to be positive, and the base can't be 1. So it has to be bigger than 0, but it can't be 1. Now this definition should make a little more sense. The log base b of the number n is k if and only if b to the power of k is n. b to the power of k is n, exactly as we've done it with numbers down here. Okay. So, so far, I have shown you the mechanics of what you do when you see a logarithm on the page. All you have to do is say the base, which is written right underneath the logarithm, to the power of whatever the thing is equal to, is equal to whatever uh, you're taking the logarithm of, because the, the logarithm gives you the exponent back of whatever you're taking the logarithm of. Right? But we haven't really done anything graphical. We haven't really shown you that they're inverse functions. We haven't really done any of that. So what we need to do now is draw a couple of quick pictures to show you that the logarithm is really the inverse function of an exponential function. And then you'll really understand more about why they're exactly uh, so closely related cousins of one another. Okay, so why does this behavior happen? Why is it that 2 to the power of k is this? Why is it that 2 to the power of 0 is this? Why is that the case? Let's look at the following thing. Let's draw two graphs. This is the middle of my board. So I'm going to try to draw two graphs. I'm going to try to draw the exponential function right here. And then I'm going to try to draw over there, I'm going to try to draw the logarithm. So here I have f of x, and here I have x. And I want to draw first the exponential function. So what I'm going to draw as my exponential function is f of x is 2 to the power of x. Again, remember, I'm using the base of 2. But this base can literally be 10 or 5 or 15. It can't be negative, and it can't be 1, but it can be anything else. It can even be decimals. 1.3 to the power of x is perfectly fine as a base for this exponential function. But 2 is very easy because we can calculate things in our heads really, really easy with the number 2. Now, I think I need to um, draw some tick marks, and I need to try to be kind of precise with them. So here's 1, here's 2, here's 3, and here's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Okay, I barely made it. That's as many as I need. Remember, every exponential uh, with a positive base like this, a bigger than 1, starts off like this and goes up to the right. So we know this exponential function is going to look like this. We know it's going to go through the value of 1, because this is 1 right here, right? So we know it's going to go through here. But we need to be a little bit more precise so that when we draw the inverse, it'll make a little more sense. So what we're going to do is we're going to calculate um, 0, 1. That's going to be a value here. And then when we put the value of 1 in here, this is 1, this is 2, this is 3. We'll put the value of 1 in here. Uh, 2 to the 1 power is going to be 2, so it's going to be up right here at 2, right? Now we put 2 in here, it's going to be 2 to the power of 2 is 4, so here's 1, 2, 3, 4, so it's going to be something like this, 
okay? And then three, so two to the power of three is gonna be eight. So that's why I needed eight. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's gonna be eight, and then it's gonna be something kind of like this. All right? So you see, it's not a straight line. If it was a straight line, it would be like this. But you see, it's curving. So what we need to do is attempt, and I'm probably going to mess this up, but it needs to go something like this. It needs to go through this point, through this point, through this point, and then up. It's not perfect, but I'm not going to erase it because it's actually close enough. It goes through all of these points. Now I need to label some points because I'm going to draw the same points over in the logarithmic curve. Okay? What do we have right here? Well, this point goes over here. It's 2 to the power of 3, that was equal to 8. Uh, the base 2 to the power of 3, it was equal to 8. That's why we landed right there. Okay, this one uh, is, I'm going to save that one for later. This one right here is, uh, over here, we can draw a little line right here. It's 2 to the power of 1. 2 to the power of 1, that's equal to 2. Now we know that this is 2 to the power of 2, right? So I can kind of draw this one here as over here. This is going to be uh, 2, I'm sorry, 3 comma 8. This is 3 comma 8, and this one is 2 comma 4, and this one right here is 1 comma 2, and this is just the intercept right there, okay? So this one right here is 2 to the power of 2 is 4, but what I want to do is I want to introduce this notation. Notice over here I have b to the power of k is n. The k is the exponent. The base is b. n is the number you get out uh, well, that the exponential calculates, n. So what we really have here is I'm going to say this right here is, uh, is I know it's really the number 2, but I'm going to put the letter K underneath it. So really, this thing is going to be something like K comma N. Why? Because 2 to the power of K was equal to N. Yes, I know it's at the number 4, but I'm generalizing it because I want to map it over. You'll see why I'm going to generalize it later. So it's really the number 2, but let's call it the letter K because any of these numbers can be K. I'm going to run it through. It's going to be 2 to the power of K. That gives me the number back. We know it's really the number 4, but that's pretty much what it looks like right there. Okay. Now what we want to do is we want to draw the inverse of this exponential function. The inverse, remember, is the function that you get when you draw a diagonal line at 45 degrees, which is this line, y is equal to x, and you flip this thing over. Okay. Now, I don't have room on this graph, so what I'm going to do is go over here and try to draw it right here. So here is this. I'm going to try to draw it as good as I can. I'm not going to probably do a great job. And this is not going to be f of x. This is going to be f uh, inverse of x, right? the inverse function, which means that I have to draw kind of this diagonal line here, which I will do as a little reference. It's going to be a diagonal line, and this diagonal line is the equation y is equal to x. And we're going to essentially, you have to pretend it's here, and you map it, and you flip it over, right? So how many tick marks do I need? Let's try to use the similar colors. Let's go, if you think about it, this is going to flip down, so you need 8 this direction. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. That's 8. And then let's just do 1, 2, 3, 4. All we need, I think, is 4 in this direction, like this. All right. So what's going to happen is this thing is going to get mapped over here. So what's going to happen is let's extend this guy down just a little bit. Remember, the inverse function takes all of these points and it interchanges them. This point gets interchanged. This point gets interchanged. That's how the mapping happens. So we know that 0, 1 is here. So that means it needs to go through 1, 0, 1, 0 right here. Actually, let me... Yeah, let's do it right here. 1, 0. It needs to go through this point right there. 1, 2 is a point. That means 2, 1. 2, 1. This needs to be a point because I flip it around. 
2 comma 4, that means 4 comma 2 needs to be a point. 1, 2, 3, 4 comma 1, 2 means this guy right here. One, whoops, 1, 2, 3, 4. Whoops, I did the wrong one. It's right next door, right here. 1, 2, 3, 4 comma 2. And then 3 comma 8 means flip it over 8 comma 3. This is 8 comma 3. This point needs to be in right here. So all I tell you is take these, I flip them around, they draw the points, and then you can kind of see that it's going to bend over like this. So if I can do a good job, which I probably can't, it's going to go through like this, bend over, and go something, something like this, which actually is not too bad. Eh, I kind of messed up the end there. You get the idea. It goes something like this. That's not too bad. And if you use your imagination, you can see that this thing reflected over is the exact inverse because it's a flipped over version of this thing. So this equation down here that we've written down is not 2 to the x. This thing is called the inverse. Right? And it is log base 2 of the number n. Remember, you're taking the logarithm using a given base of the number n, and what does it give you back? It gives you back the exponent. The exponent such that that base to that exponent is that number. You're literally going backwards. It's like the logarithms, like, it's, we never calculate the exponent. That's it's never done, but logarithms do that. They give you the exponent back, right? They give you k back. They give you the k, which is the exponent needed when you raise it to the base to give me this number right here, right? So every number I put in here, the logarithm is giving me the exponent needed back, right? So what are these points here? Okay. This point means that I put, um, this point means that I put uh, 1, 0 in there which is exactly the mirror image of this guy, okay, or the flipped value of this guy. It gives me the exponent back, in other words. If I'm going to take the logarithm, base 2 of the number 1, the exponent that, this, that I need to do that is a 0, because 2 to the 0 power gives me 1, okay. Um, this point right here is 2 comma 1, because if I'm taking the logarithm, base 2, of the number 2, I'm going to get a 1 back. I need an exponent of 1 to do that. Okay? This guy is, I'm going to write two things down. It was 2, 4. It's really 4, 2. However, I'm going to also write it as instead of k dot comma n, it's n comma k. Because what I'm doing is I'm putting the number in that I want to take the logarithm of, and it's giving me the exponent back. In this case, the exponent was 2, but in general, it's giving me the exponent k back. And then this last one here is, instead of 3, 8, it's 8, 3. So remember, what did I say exponent, uh, exponential functions do? I'm sorry, what, what did I say inverse functions do? It, it undoes, or it does the opposite of the original function. So if I have a function here, number 1, and a function here, number 2, and I put the number 1 in there, then I'm going to get some value out. And I take that and I put it through the inverse. I'm going to get some other number out. But the number I get out will be exactly the same as what I put in because it kind of undoes the, the function of the first calculation. If I put a 2 in and run it through both of them, I should get a 2 out. If I put a 10 in and run it through both, I should get a 10 out. So let's look at that. In this exponential function, if I put a 3 in as an input, I'm going to get an 8 out of this exponential function. But if I take this 8 and I put it through the second function, I'm going to get a 3 out. 3 is exactly what I put in to begin with. If I put a 2 into this original function, I'm going to get a 4 out. But if I put that 4 in here, I'm going to get a 2 out, which is exactly what I started with. So you see, these are inverse functions, because whatever I put into the exponential function, and then I run it through the inverse, which is the logarithm, with the same base. The base has to be the same. 
What I get out is exactly what I put in. And that means, of course, this isn't a mirror image reflection of this thing here. So you need to remember two things about this graph. Number one, this is a logarithm. It starts, it's, it gets infinitely close to the axis here. It's an asymptote, but it goes off to infinity this way, but it bends over very, very quickly like this. Okay, whatever number you put into the function, it's giving you the exponent out needed so that if you run it backwards through the function, you kind of get what you started with. And then, of course, it's a mirror image reflection of this exponential function. So, these guys, inverses of each other. So, we don't say that this is just the, the, the log is the inverse of the exponential. We also go the other way. We say that the exponential is also the inverse of the log. They're inverses of each other. They undo each other. So if you have an equation that has an exponential function in it, but that variable is wrapped up in the exponential function, you want to kill the exponential, you might take the logarithm of both sides because the logarithm is going to kill the exponential. It's going to disappear because of exactly what we said here. Inverses undo each other, right? If you have the other situation, you do the other operation, like if you have a logarithm on both sides of an equation or on one side of an equation, but your, x, your variable is wrapped up inside of the logarithm, but you want to solve for the variable, you got to kill that logarithm. So you raise both sides of the equation to the to the exponent, you know, base to the what you basically have to raise it to an exponent um, to kill the logarithm, and it'll disappear, and your variable pop out. We'll do that later. We'll solve equations using this property here. The bases are the same. That's the other thing I want to point out. Uh, in order for this inverse business to happen, the bases are the same, right? The base two, two to the power of x, the inverse of that is the base two logarithm, and it had, the bases have to be the same. Otherwise, they're not the same thing. And that's why when we solve logs, when we do this business with solving logs, we end up writing it as an exponential function because they both kind of go together like that. And any log can be written in exponential form, and any exponential can be written in terms of a log form. Because what's happening in this log equation is I'm just giving you a number and getting the exponent out. When I go to this equation, I'm giving you the exponent, and I'm giving you the number out. So it's literally like going backwards through the operation there. All right. So I want to talk uh, about a little bit shifting the discussion to why we care about logs. There's so many reasons I can't give it all in one lesson, but I'm going to give you a couple of really big ones right now. Um, so far, we've been doing a lot of base 2 logarithms. The reason we're doing base 2 logarithms is because it's easy to calculate. But really, one of the most common logs that you're going to run into is base 10 logarithm. In fact, when you say the word logarithm, if you don't specify a base at all, most people are going to assume that you probably mean a base 10 logarithm. And later on in the class, we're going to talk about base E logarithms, uh, the special number E. We'll talk about that later. We're not going to get into that now. That thing is called the natural logarithm. We'll talk about that much later. For now, let's focus on the other special logarithm, which is the base 10 logarithm. All right, so base 10 logarithms are really important. So let's talk about that. Base 10 logs. All right? So um, what I mean when I say base 10 logarithm is, is if you have a function, f of x, equals 10 to the power of x, the base is 10, then its inverse
everyone, my name is Ariana Stanberry. I am a Jamaican black female alto saxophonist originally from Jamaica and currently residing in Connecticut, USA. I'm here performing for you today as part of the Berkeley Anywhere concert series. This series features different artists every single Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so be sure to be tuned in for the next episode. The first song you heard me play was Versace on the Floor by Bruno Mars. The second song you'll hear me sing and play is called Because of Who You Are. It is a gospel song originally performed by Vicky Yohi. Enjoy.
then its inverse is going to be a logarithm. But the logarithm has to be a base 10 as well. Logarithm, base 10 of some variable x. Okay? So you see, in order for these to be inverses, the bases have to be the same across the exponential and across the logarithm. Otherwise, they're not inverses of each other. So let's talk a little bit about some base 10 logs. Let's say I have log of the number 1. Notice I didn't write the base 10. If you see a log without any base written at all, you just pretty much assume it's a, log, it's a base 10 log. That's how common it is. If you see a base there, you have to use the base. But if you don't use a base at all, if you don't see a base at all, it's a base 10 log. What is the log base 10 of the number 1? Well, what we know is that that means that's exactly the same thing as this, base 10 logarithm of 1. And what this means is we take the base of 10, raise it to some unknown power we're trying to calculate because the log gives you the power back, equals 1. So my question to you is, what value of x works? And that means x has to be 0. Why? Because 10 to the 0 is 1, right? So what we've learned here is that log of the number 1, base 10 log of the number 1 is 0, okay? What I'm going to do is calculate a few of these things going down the page, and I'm going to draw some really important um, observations as we go down here. So that was the log of the number 1. Let's take a look at log of the number 10. Again, it's a base 10 log because there's nothing written there, but it, you can kind of assume that it is. This is the exact same thing as writing base 10 logarithm of the number 10. So what does this mean? It means the base to the power of something has to equal this number. Now what does this exponent have to be equal to? It has to be equal to 1. The only exponent that works is 1. So that means that the log of the number 10 is equal to 1. So we figured out the log of 1 is 0, base 10, and the log of 10 is 1, again, base 10. So let's do a couple more examples uh, down the page here. Let's go and do the log of 100. Okay, how do you figure this out? Well, you know it's a base 10 by now. So 10 to the power of something is 100. What does this exponent have to be? The only way this works is if x is 2, because 10 squared is 100. So we've learned that log of 100 is equal to 2. So I'm, I'm generating a pattern here, and now, now that we understand what we're doing, we're going to go down the page a little bit faster. If the log of 1 is 0, and the log of 10 is 1, and the log of 100 is 2, what do you think that the log of 1,000 will equal to? Well, it's going to be 10 to the power of something is 1,000, so it has to equal 3, right? What do you think the log of 10,000 is going to be equal to? Well, 10 to the power of something is 10,000 has to be equal to 4. You see what's happening? You started out at 0, and then it goes 1, then it goes 2, then it goes 3, then it goes 4. So as I take the logarithm, I've multiplied by 10. I'm taking the logarithm of something 10 times bigger. And then here I'm taking the logarithm of 10 times bigger still. And here I'm taking the logarithm of 10 times bigger still, 10 times bigger still. Every time I go up times 10, the logarithm just goes up by 1. You see, I'm taking the logarithm of something 10 times bigger every time, but the logarithm only goes up from 0 to 1, to 2, to 3, to 4. And you can generalize that. What if you do something that's not a perfect little times 10 thing? Let's take the logarithm of 20,000. That is not 10 times bigger. It's not 10 times bigger. That's only 2 times bigger. What do you think you would get? Well, what you're going to have is you're going to have 10 to the power of something is 20,000. When you run that in a calculator and figure out what this exponent is, you're going to get 4.3. Now, I've rounded it to two decimal places. But you see, it's just a little bit bigger than this one. 
See, the logarithm of 10,000 was 4. The logarithm of 20,000 was just a little bit bigger than 4. Okay? What do you think the logarithm of 150 would be? Just to pick a totally different number. Well, what you would say is 10, well, base 10, to the power of something is 150. When you run that through the calculator, you're going to get 2.18. And I'm getting to a point here, I promise. I have one more to put on here. What about the logarithm of 1,700? When you run that through a calculator, you're going to get 3.23. Okay? What I'm trying to get you to say is something that I honestly didn't really realize about logarithms until well, well beyond I had learned them. If something way, way, way in the future, I, I finally understood what logarithms really are. I don't want to say their only use, but one of their main uses. Okay. When you run a number through a logarithm, what the logarithm really is doing is it's giving you the exponent back. That's what I've been telling you over and over again. But notice that for a thousand, what's happening is the number you're getting back is the number of decimal places past the first position. When you take the log base 10 of a thousand, you're getting the three. You're, it's telling you, hey, there's three digits past the number one. When you take the log of 10,000 and get a four back, it's telling you, hey, there's four digits past the one. When you take a log of 100, it's telling you, hey, there's two digits past the one. Hey, there's only one digit past the one. Hey, there's no digits past the one. So the logarithm base 10 is really telling you how big the number is, how many digits it is. It's ignoring all the details. Notice that the log of 20,000 is telling you, hey, there's there's 4.3 digits. That's kind of a little weird because there's four digits after here, but it's basically telling you how close you're going to be because when it gets to five, that would be five digits past, right? It's at 20,000. You have to go 20 and 40 and 60 and 80. Then you would get to 100,000. That would be five digits past. So this is telling you you're getting fractionally a little bit closer to that next decimal place, that next zero in the number. It's telling you how much closer you are to that, but it's basically reporting back how many uh, zeros or how many digits you have in the number past the first position. Here you had uh, none past the first position, here you had one past the first position, two fast past the first position, three past the first position, four past. This is just a little bit more past four. This is a little bit more past uh, two, so it's 2.18. This is a little bit more past three, getting close to, you know, you have to get up to, you know, 10,000 to get to the next one, and you're getting a little bit closer, and the decimal part of it is telling you that. So it tells you the number of digits. So if you have numbers where you don't care about the exact value of the number, you just kind of want to know roughly how big things are, then a logarithm is a perfect thing because it's going to throw away all of the, I don't want to say throw it away, but it's going to tell you basically how big the number is, how many digits the number has, without all the details of that, of the actual number there. You might say, why do we care about that? Why don't we just give you the number? Well, a great example is the Richter scale of, 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 uh, of uh, earthquakes. You always hear in the news, 6.2 on the Richter scale, 5.3 on the Richter scale. And it also doesn't really become very clear what those numbers really mean. But you have to remember that every time we multiplied by 10 of the number, the logarithm of it just went up by 1. So what we've learned here is since the Richter scale is logarithmic, if you see a 4 Point oh on the Richter scale and a 5.0 on the Richter scale, it doesn't seem like real very much, but really that means it's 10 times bigger. Wow. A 4 on a Richter scale and a 5 on a Richter scale is not a little bit different. It's 10 times bigger. How do I know? Because the difference between 3 and 4, or let's go back to 3, three and 4 versus 4 and 5, the difference between 3 and 4 on the Richter scale is actually 10 times bigger in energy. Earthquake is measured in energy, right? So if you have a situation in an earthquake, 
right? I'm not an earthquake scientist, okay? But here you're basically measuring energy, energy of the earth coming coming out in terms of, you know, um, in terms of uh, uh, this guy here. Let's let's talk about versus time. So energy versus time. An earthquake probably starts, you know, small and it gets really, really powerful and it gets really small again, right? So what you have with earthquakes is there is a huge amount of difference in energy released, right? So what might happen is you might start out really, really, really low on this energy scale. It might be really, you can't even read it on this graph. You have a little spike here, a little bit of bigger spike. And then the main part of the earthquake comes. It goes really, really big, really, really big. And it has junk down here you can't even read. And then it's really, really big again, really, really big again. And then it gets off the chart. And it comes back down like this. You see, a graph like this isn't that useful to us. I mean, it is useful. It does tell you how big everything is. But the problem is, I can kind of read these, but I can't read any of this stuff down here because at this scale, the tiny little wiggles at the bottom are impossible to read because they're just so small compared to everything else. And the reason they're so small is because there's a huge difference in energy released in the beginning of the quake to the middle of the quake, right? So what you need is a way to tell me how big these different parts of the earthquake are, or how big different earthquakes are, without using the actual numbers, the actual energy numbers, because the energy numbers are going to be huge, 100 million trillion, and then another earthquake might be 100,000 or 5,000. And that number is just so different that you can't graph it like that. So what we do is instead of reporting the energy numbers of the earthquake, we take the logarithm. Right Now, the actual Richter scale is a little more complicated than this, but basically you're taking the logarithm. So notice that when we multiplied, like this, this, the difference here in energy here to the energy here might be a, a difference of 100 or a difference of 1,000. It's hard to graph that. But the difference between uh, 100 and, and 10,000 is just a difference of two points on a logarithm scale. So actually we graph these earthquakes on what we call logarithm scales. We take the logarithm of all the data, and that basically gets rid of all the details and it just tells me how many digits because the numbers are so huge. I only care about how many digits are in there when it's little versus when it's big. So the actual Richter scale looks something like this. So it's called a Richter scale. And again, I'm not an earthquake scientist. I grabbed these right off um, Wikipedia, right? So a one on a Richter scale is called a micro. That's You basically can't even feel that. A two on a Richter scale is called a minor earthquake. Uh, three is also characterized as minor. You probably feel that, but you're not going to be that scared by it. A four is going to be called a light. Light, you're going to have some damage, but probably not very much. A five is going to be moderate. A five is when you're going to start reporting these things on the news. A six on the Richter scale is a strong. A seven on the Richter scale is a major right? An 8 on the Richter scale is great. A 9 on the Richter scale is total devastation. Right? A 9 point anything. Now, there's no 10 because it only goes to 9.99 or whatever. Okay? But basically, anything above a 9, your city is flattened. Major, major damage. I mean, way more major than a typical earthquake. I mean, the reason that these numbers don't often convey the strength here is that because the number 2 and the number 4, they don't seem so far apart. However, between the number 1 and 2, this is times 10 bigger. Between 2 and 3, this is times bigger than that again. So that means between 1 and 3 is actually 100 times bigger because 10 times 10, right? This is times 10. This is times 10. 
And then from here to here is times 10. And then you have times 10. You get the whole idea. Times 10 times 10. So if you're looking at the difference between 1 and 2, that's 100 times bigger. Between 1 and 3, I'm sorry, 1 and uh, this one right here, this is, yeah, this is 100. This would be 1,000 times bigger. This would be 10,000 times bigger. Right? And you could go down the calculation and figure out how much bigger a 9 would be than a 1. But that's why when you see on the news, you might see a 5.3 on the Richter scale, and that's bad. But a 6.3 is way, way worse because it's 10 times bigger. Okay, And that is one of the biggest uses of the, of the logarithm is in practical use that you would see in everyday life. But there's many other examples. I can give you from chemistry. I can give you from physics or whatever. But this is the one that you'll actually probably see on TV. And it all goes back to the fact that when you start taking logarithms of numbers if you, on a base 10, then you start multiplying by 10, then the actual logarithms are just giving you the number of digits back. So they're, they're only going up by 1 each time, every time you multiply by 10. So that is the concept of what is a logarithm. I hope that you can understand what a logarithm is. It's basically the opposite, also what we call the inverse of an exponential function. Logarithms are not going away. Some students don't like them, but you're just going to have to get used to them. My best advice is just to, when you start to see a logarithm written down anywhere, just immediately convert it to exponential form, because most people are more familiar and comfortable with an exponential function. Logarithms get you know, crazy, and people get crazy and don't understand how to deal with it. But we have to learn it because later on we have laws of logarithms, how to add logarithms, how to multiply logarithms. They're not going away. So make sure you understand this, solve these problems, draw these graphs, follow me on to the next lesson. We're going to start simplifying expressions that have logarithms, and we'll be using this definition, this exponent inverse definition along the way. So follow me on there. We'll continue learning about logarithms in math. Hello, welcome back. The title of this lesson is called, What is a Logarithm? Or I could retitle this thing, Logarithms Explained, or Understanding Logarithms. This is part one of several lessons on logarithms. A logarithm is one of the most important functions in all of science, in all of math. And I know I say this a lot, but really I'm trying to emphasize when I'm really trying to tell you things that are extremely important. And you'll run into logarithms in your chemistry classes. You'll run into logarithms in all of your physics classes. Any engineering class, any math class, you're going to run into logarithms. So it's not every day I can teach you about a function this important. I remember the very first... Hello, and welcome to the Engineering Circuit Analysis Tutor. Uh, I'm very excited to teach this course because I'm an electrical engineer myself, so I was always very interested in electricity and electric circuits uh, and things like that. So what we're going to do in this class is exactly what the title is. We're going to learn all about circuits. We're going to learn about electricity. We're going to learn about the components that go into circuits. But mostly what you do in engineering courses is learn how to analyze them. Given a circuit, what is going on? Where is the current going? What is the purpose of the circuit? Uh, and so there's a lot of details there and a lot of techniques that have been, been developed over the years to pull those things off. You know, 100 years ago, circuits and, and all of the things that we take for granted today would be super theoretical. But they're all basically physics. They're taking energy out of a battery or energy out of a wall and letting it run around in a loop and doing some useful work with it. That work might be spinning a motor, right, to spin a fan. Or that work might be shooting a radio wave out across the world to talk to somebody else. Or that work might be to go into a microprocessor and, you know, flip a bunch of bits around and add a bunch of numbers together and basically create what we call a computer. But there's basically infinite number of ways that you can create circuits to do what we want 
them to do. But before you can understand a microchip, before you can understand an amplifier, before you can understand a nuclear power plant, you have to start at the basics. You have to start at the really, really simple questions, the things that are so fundamental. And that's what we're going to do in this course. We're going to start with fundamentals, and then we're going to go on and talk about circuits and the different kinds of circuits, how to analyze circuits, figure out what's happening in the, inside these circuits. And you'll find that there's a broad array of tools that you'll learn in your classes to help you with that. Now, I'll say right away, the title of this guy is Engineering Circuit Analysis. But my goal is uh, to really try to make it as accessible as possible to anybody out here who wants to learn it. Right? Uh, don't let the word engineering scare you too much. Engineering is a big word, makes it sound really hard, but I'm going to try to break things down uh, so that everyone can get it. Now, I will say, the good news is, and this is true, with circuits in general, there really aren't that many uh, big picture concepts to understand. We, in this section, we're going to talk about voltage, current, and resistance because they're so important. But really, once you get past that, there's a few other big picture concepts, and then you understand really the basics. The challenge with circuits comes is that I can uh, draw a circuit on the board, and you might know how to analyze it and figure out what's going on, uh, and then I might change one little line, one little branch of the circuit. It might completely change how the thing operates, right? So there's an infinite variety in how they can be constructed. That's what really requires you to get a lot of practice, and that's what this course is going to be. It's centered around practice, 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 practice. And to be honest with you, you don't need to know much more than algebra to do very, very well in this class. Yes, we are going to use complex numbers a little bit later on, later, later in the course, not, and not in the beginning. We are going to use uh, some calculus, some integration later, later, later on in the course. Uh, but by and large, you can do a ton of circuit analysis with just some basic algebra. And that's the way I'm going to try to teach it to you so that, you know, everybody it can be accessible to everybody while also catering to the engineering student, which is really the focus of the class. All right, so I had, I had to figure out where to start. I think the most important thing for everyone watching this to understand is the concepts of voltage, current, and resistance. Because those three things we're going to end up zooming in on and talking about for the next many, many hours. Uh, and you really have to understand what they are. A lot of students, if they haven't already had an interest in circuits, uh, they get very confused at what the difference between voltage and current is. And how does resistance play into that? So what we're going to do in this particular section is zoom in on that. And I want you to really make sure you internalize and understand what they mean. Because as you go and solve a circuit, and I'm asking you what the voltage is, you need to kind of have an internal picture of what, what that means, even before you do any math. So there's no math in this section. You know, this is all definitions. I try to make it as interesting as I can, but it's so incredibly important. Make sure you understand this. First things first, I think we all know this. What is an electric circuit? What is a circuit? I mean, a lot of people, um, a lot of people think they know what a circuit is, and most people probably do, but what is a circuit? Uh, the simplest one-sentence definition is it's a closed... It's a closed loop that carries, what does it carry? What do you think? Electricity. You know, like I say, I have to start somewhere and start, I start, I never, never, never assume that you know anything about what I'm talking about. So a circuit, uh, you think about a circuit of a racetrack or a circuit in the Indy 500. It has to go all the way around. If you don't have it going all the way back around to the starting point, then you don't have a circuit. And no electricity can flow in such a situation unless it goes all the way back around to where you start from. 
So, in order to have a circuit, it has to come back to where it starts from. So, a simple example of that, without really getting into any kind of detail, is, um, you know, here's a source. I'm going to put a plus minus to different to, to denote it as a source. This could be a battery. You know, this could be a battery that you pull out of, uh, you know, you go buy it at the store. And we're not going to put anything in the circuit with it. We're just going to draw these lines here. These lines are wires. So it would be just like you might think. You get a battery, you hook a wire up that goes all the way back around to the other side. This com completes a circuit. The electricity can circle around and around and around here, coming from one terminal back around to the other one. That means it's a circuit. Super, super important, but you know, also very simple as well. Now let's get to something that's not quite so simple, but you know, a lot of people still may understand this. What is current? And when I say current, I mean electric. Never mind how to spell current, first of all, current. Electric current. What is electric current? Okay, the simplest definition to write down for what electric current is, it is the flow of electrons in a circuit. It's the flow of electrons in a circuit. So everybody's heard of, heard of current, uh, electric current. Um, an analogy to electric current would be current in a stream. We all know what a current is in a stream, right? It's when the stream is moving. There's a current. It's pushing your boat, right? It's the movement of something. Don't confuse that because a lot of people get confused with voltage and current if you're not really familiar with these terms. Voltage has really nothing to do with anything moving. We'll talk about what voltage is in a minute. The current, the electric current. Think of a stream. Think of something moving. That is what's moving. So in real life, if you have a piece of wire, which is metal, the electrons are really and truly what's moving around in that wire. So if you wanted to kind of zoom in and draw a little picture of that, um, we could draw another little circuit here, a little simple one anyway, like this. Goes up, connected all the way back around to the beginning. So there's going to be current circulating around and around and around. But if I zoomed in, let's say this is a piece of wire, right? If I zoom in this wire and get a microscope up on top of it and zoom in on it really, really tight, if I could see that, what I would see inside is a bunch of atoms, right? So this atom is going to have a positive nucleus, and this atom is going to have a negative electron orbiting around this atom. Now, in real life, this might be, you know, copper wire. So there'll be lots of protons in the nucleus and lots of electrons. But for the purpose of this drawing, just pretend that there's a positive center and there's a negative things orbiting. Now here's another atom here. It's got a positive center and it's got a negative thing orbiting. This one's got a positive and a negative. Every atom has this positive center and negative surroundings. Now in metals like copper and gold and silver that conduct electricity well, these electrons, they're not really tightly held to the atom. They're there, but they can be coerced, so to speak, to move. They can be you know, you can talk them into moving if you, if you try hard enough. The object that actually talk, talks them into moving is the battery, right? Is the battery or the source coming from your wall, for instance. And when that happens, when you hook a battery up to this wire like this, since these electrons are not really, really held on terribly tightly, what happens is this electron, you know, down here, this electron is going to jump, literally, it's going to jump over and grab it and go into the orbit of the next atom. And at that moment, the same time that happens, it's a chain reaction. This guy goes to the next guy. This electron moves to this guy. And this electron moves to its adjacent atom. And this process happens at almost at the speed of light. So you can't see this electron movement, but that's what's in fact happening. So it's a chain reaction, and they're almost like in lockstep, moving 
from one atom to the next. And this movement is really, you know, you can think of it as, as energy of motion, is the energy that the circuit uses to do whatever it's going to do. You know, turn a fan, turn a light bulb on, whatever. That's where the energy from the battery is going. It's going into pushing these electrons around, which is electric current. So, when I uh, draw this here, I'm drawing these, uh, these negative electrons moving. So, this is what we call electron current. Or electric current. That is another way to say that. So the electrons, uh, if you want to think of it this way, we'll go draw it down here. This is the negative terminal of the battery. This is where the negative charges are sort of piled up. So here, this is called the electric current. So the electrons literally bleed out of this negative terminal. They go all the way around. And they go back and they enter it back into the positive terminal because this is positive, so it's going to attract the negative electrons. And this process goes on and on and on and on until the battery basically dies out. If it's a battery and it can't supply any more electrons, or if it's a wall, it just keeps going and going forever and you get charged for it, right? It comes from the power plant. But the electrons are really and truly what's moving. Now, let me blow your mind a little bit here. Uh, in a basic, basic circuits course, like a hobby book, like, you know go to Barnes & Noble or somewhere and just get a book on electricity. They'll talk about the electrons moving. But when you get into engineering and you really start trying to analyze how a circuit's going to really behave, it's a little bit cumbersome to talk about the electrons moving, even though that's really what's happening in real life. The reason that it's a little bit cumbersome is because of really one reason. Electrons have a negative charge. They have a negative charge. And what we're going to do later on is we're going to have a circuit and we're going to write equations, simple algebra equations, so don't get too worried about them, but they're going to be equations, and they're going to describe how the current is moving. If we do that for a bunch of negative electrons, then we're going to have negative signs running around all of our equations for our electric circuits. And that would totally work, totally work. However, it's a little cumbersome to have negative signs running around all of our equations. So in real life, from, from this moment on, I'm just teaching you this to give you background, but from this moment on, we're not really going to talk about electron current flow or electric current flow. We're not really going to be talking about the direction that the electrons are moving. Let me show you what we are going to talk about. In this very same wire, you may have to stare at this a little while to realize this, but I think you should be able to convince yourself that since this charge is jumping this direction, for a temporary moment, like it's a, we're talking about a chain reaction, right? This one moves here, and then this one moves here, and this one moves here. But at the very moment that this um, negative charge jumps away, for a split second, this atom has lost an electron, right? So it's an electrically neutral atom. It's zero charge altogether because the electrons and the protons cancel out. They're the same number. But as soon as I lose one of these electrons, I have sort of a positive charge left over, right? Same thing happens here. When I lose this guy, for a split moment, I have a positive charge here. So as these negative charges jump this direction, mathematically, it's the same thing as pretending that I have positive charges jumping this direction, the opposite direction, because this guy's lost an electron, and then the guy before it loses one and before it. So as these guys move this way, it's the same as saying mathematically a positive charge goes the other direction. Um, I hope that makes sense to you qualitatively um, based on my drawing here. But if it doesn't, all you really have to remember is that the real current that we talk about in engineering is called the whole current. 
and it goes in an opposite direction from the electric current, which is the real life thing that's happening. And it's a mathematical convenience. Because since now, instead of talking about negative electrons moving this way, we talk about positive charges moving this way, now we have positive charges in all of our equations. And all of our equations are, have rid themselves of all these negative signs, or at least a lot of the negative signs, right? And it makes it a lot easier to deal with. So it's really saving you time, if you think about it that way. It's saving you a thought process. So, uh, the real electrons are going this way, but we pretend that we have an equal and opposite number of positive charges going the same direction. We call it a whole current. The reason it's called a whole current is because for a split second, when this electron leaves, it's left like a hole behind on this atom, which is making it that guy positive. So, the whole current actually comes out of the positive terminal like this, right? And we say, we denote that current I in electrical engineering or in engineering, and it's the whole current. This is such an important concept that you really should not go on until you truly internalize and make sure. Basically, all you need to remember in the big picture is that anytime you have a circuit, the source is going to always have a positive and a negative terminal. Always. Just like any battery. If you pull a battery out of the box, you'll see one side's labeled positive, one side's labeled negative. In real life, if you hook the battery up to something, electrons are the, really the objects that come around from the negative terminal back to the positive. But in, in electrical or in any kind of an engineering course when you're taking a circuits class, you never, ever, ever talk about the electron flow in this, this direction, this way. You always instead talk about the positive current flow. It's the same value going in opposite directions. And it makes the equations much, much simpler. And in fact, all the power calculations, the, the function of the circuit, the energy, all, everything is completely and totally described by talking about this sort of like this pretend current that's going in the opposite way. So just get used to seeing that. You're always going to pretend that your current's coming out of the positive terminal, even though in reality the electrons are bleeding out the other side. Now, the units of uh, electric current. Uh, I, talk, I told you briefly, current is denoted I, right? I. It probably has some history to it. You could go look it up. You would think current would be called C, but it's not. It's called I. Um, so anytime you see I labeled in a circuit, that is the electric, uh, or that's the current flowing through that branch of the circuit or something of that nature. Now, what are the units of current? A lot of you have already heard this. Uh, units, let's go ahead and change colors a little bit. The units for current is the ampere, which is also called an amp, right? Um, or you can call it simply A, right? The uh, higher the number of, of amps, the uh, you know the higher the, the current going through the circuit. Basically, an ampere is telling you how many charges are moving through your circuit per second. And there's a, a definition in physics that you could go look up for that, and that's fine. It's not terribly important because, you know, really we're always talking in circuits. You know, in, in a physics class, you'd be talking about an individual charge moving. There's so many coulombs on a charge moving, right? But in a circuit, you've got billions of charges in this in this guy. So you don't talk about coulombs and, and how many coulombs of charge are crossing through a boundary. You just look at the aggregate, which is how many amperes, which is a coulomb per second. How many coulombs per second really are going through that guy? 
So an ampere represents how many coulombs of charge are passing. If you were to slice this wire and watch how many go through there, that would be how many coulombs of charge go through there per second. But really, you don't have to deal with that too much in a, in a circuits class. We're always going to be talking about amps or amperes. So bringing it back to the everyday language that everybody already knows. You, you've heard of amps, right? Everybody's heard of amps. Um, that is the current flow. The higher the number of amps in that circuit, is the, the more it can potentially kill you, right? It doesn't take much current to kill a person, actually, uh, believe it or not. So you might have a car stereo that has you know, a 10-amp amplifier, right? It means 10 amps of current are flowing around that amplifier because to push the sound into those speakers and get them to move really loud, um, you need a lot of physical electricity to do that, right, to actually get it to move like that. But in a computer, inside of a microchip, you might have a teeny tiny amount of current going around because those are very delicate circuits. You might have a milliamp or a microamp inside of those guys. But the base unit of current is always going to be the ampere, which is, which is what we have right here. All right. So to sum it up, uh, which is really so important, I keep talking about it, current uh, in general in real life is the flow of electrons. However, in all circuits from henceforth that we're going to talk about, we're not even going to talk about this. We're just going to say the current comes out of the positive terminal and the unit is ampere. That's really the bottom line. All right, now the next thing we have is the concept of voltage, which many, many, many people get confused with current because it's kind of used interchangeably. Voltage is the push, I'm going to put in quotes the push, that causes the current to flow. So in other words, it's the source, right? It's the source. So when you look at a 9-volt battery, that battery comes in a physical size and has 9 volts. 9 volts is a relative indicator to tell you how much, for lack of a better word, um, that battery can push in a circuit. So the um, current and the voltage are very, very closely related. You cannot have any current flowing without something pushing it. And so you have to have some source there to push it, which is usually a battery or a wall socket or something like that, and that's always measured in volts. So when you, when you see on TV, you know, oh boy, you could be killed by 10,000 volts. Well, 10,000 volts is not really how much current is flowing through you. That's just how much push there is. So to kind of bring it down to, to layman's terms, think about a straw. Pretend this were a soda straw that you get at a restaurant, right? And let's say it's a pretty narrow straw, like a, almost like a straw that you use to stir your coffee. Okay? Now, if I blow on it like this, then I'm going to be pushing air through that straw. The current is the air that's actually moving through the straw. Right? That's what the current is. That's what's actually doing the movement and doing the work. All right? Now, I'm actually blowing on it, so I'm pushing. I'm actually increasing the pressure at the, at the end of that thing that's causing the current to move. That's the voltage. The push that I give it, the pressure that I give it, is what's actually causing the current to move, or the, in this case, the air to move through the straw. If I don't blow and I don't give any pressure, then there's no current. There's no flow of air through the straw. Same thing in a circuit. If the voltage is zero, you know, coming out of the source here, then there's no current. So the two are very closely related. It's just that the voltage is the push, and the current is actually what's moving. That's really the, the main thing to take away from this guy. Um, so it usually comes from, a, or it always comes from a battery or some kind of other source that you might get uh, that's generated out of the wall. Now, for the units of voltage, the units 
is the volt, or simply call it V. Uh, so that's just this, 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 the uh, the same thing as the current. The more the more volts you have, the higher the voltage you have, the more potential to move current through a circuit you have. So that's why 10,000 volts is so much more dangerous than one volt. Um, it's not because it's measuring how much current's going through your body. It's just that if I grab onto a 10,000 volt fence, it has the potential to push a ton of current through my body, right? Whereas a one volt source, since it's so much less of a push, so to speak, um, it's not really going to do very much to me. Uh, all right, so that's really the main difference. So current and voltage tied at the hip are two different things. Uh, the biggest faux pas you can kind of get into is saying, boy, that was a really impressive circuit. That had 39,000 volts of electricity flowing through your body. That sentence makes no sense. Voltage does not flow through your body. Only current does. Voltage is what actually pushes the current through your body. That's really the main distinction. Now, tied to all of this is the uh, very, very important concept of resistance. All right, resistance. Resistance is very, very simple to understand. It opposes the current flow in a circuit. This might be a little bit confusing at first, but think about our soda straw, all right, for a second. Pretend for a second we didn't have actually a soda straw. Let's say we had something really big, like a paper towel tube. Like, yeah, you get the paper towels at the grocery store, and there's a giant cardboard tube in the middle. And I stick that to my mouth, and I blow. It's pretty easy to blow through a paper towel tube because it's so big, right? So I can blow all day as long as my lungs can do it. I can blow lots and lots and lots of air through there, right, with really not much effort. I don't really have to push that hard to, to actually make that air move because it's just so big. So we say that the resistance, for lack of a better word, of this guy to airflow is not very big. It's got a low resistance, right? Now let's compare and contrast that. Let's go back to our coffee stirring straw. Very, very tiny diameter. So for that one, to get any kind of air movement through it, I've got to blow pretty hard. And I can feel it in my lips. I'm, I'm really blowing because we say that the resistance of that smaller straw is much higher. The resistance to airflow is higher because it's physically constrained. You cannot force that much air through that straw very easily. I mean, you can do it, but you have to blow really hard. So we say the resistance is much higher for that guy. And actually, that analogy could directly translates to, uh, to electric circuits as well. If I literally have a wire, a, uh, you know, a copper wire as big around as, my, as I'm demonstrating here, this big around, it has a very, very, very low resistance. The cross-section is so big that tons of electrons can move through there. Tons of electricity can move through there without really much resistance because it's so big. But if I go get a wire thinner than my hair, or maybe I go get a tiny wire etched onto a computer circuit chip, which are so small that you have to have a microscope to see them, then the cross-section of a teeny tiny wire like that is going to be so small, it's going to actually resist the current. The electricity is going to get to move through there, but it's going to cause friction. There's just not as many atoms there for it to move. So the resistance is going to be higher. So for the smaller the object, the resistance is always going to be higher. The bigger the object, the resistance is going to be smaller. So think of it that way. It's resisting and it's opposing current flow, not because something intelligent is in charge of it, it's just because of the size of it usually, or the way it's constructed. So current voltage resistance, they're all so intertwined because of, of the analogy with the soda straw, really. The resistance, when the resistance is smaller, like the big paper towel tube, 
right? Then I can move a lot of air, a lot of current, without much effort, with a, a lower voltage, right? And, the, and when I go to a smaller straw, I can still move current, but it's going to take more effort, more voltage, to get the same amount of current flow, or to get the same amount of current flow through that resistance. So current, voltage, resistance are really all tied at the hip, really, as, as far as being interrelated. Now the units of resistance, the units, is called the ohm. Ohm. But you never actually write ohm in a circuit. You always use this omega, this capital omega. And so when you have a, a 5 ohm resistor, has more resistance than a 1 ohm resistor. A resistor we'll talk about in the next section, but they actually have a circuit component called a resistor whose job is to resist current flow. Seems weird why you would ever need that. We'll get to the reasons why you would need that later. But that little guy is going to try to stop the current flow to a up to a certain point. And so the higher the value, the more it's trying to resist the current flow, right? Just like the, the, the little examples that we were given before. So, very, very important topics. Current is the flow of electricity. Voltage is how much push you are pushing to make this current flow. And you're always flowing through something. That something is always going to have a resistance. Different size wire, different resistors, uh, different circuit components are going to manifest themselves as different uh, values of, of however many ohms. Now, for all of these guys, I've kind of hinted here, but I'll just spell it out. We can use the metric prefixes. For all of these guys, right? Because these are standard units. We can use the metric prefixes. So, for instance, if you're talking about amps, which is current flow, it may not make sense to talk about amps. You might need to talk about milliamps, right? Milliamps, just like a millimeter. That's one one thousandth of an amp, right? Or you might talk about microamps, right? 10 to the minus 6 amps, etc. Something like this. Right? So the base unit is always amps. It's just you have a metric modifier on the front. You might have resistance, how many ohms you're talking about in the circuit, but it might make more sense to talk about milliohms if it's a very small resistance, or even if it's tiny, tiny micro-ohms, right? That's 10 to the minus 6 ohms, right? Or if it's a large value, maybe you have kilo-ohms, or maybe you even have mega-ohms, which is millions of ohms. Right? Or here, kilo-ohms is thousands of ohms. So the, the metric system applies here. There's nothing special. And for voltage, maybe you have millivolts. You know, maybe you have kilovolts. You know, maybe you have megavolts. Maybe a nuclear power plant is operating at so many megavolts or something like that. Very, very important concepts. I can't stress them enough. So uh, we've talked about current. We've talked about voltage. We've talked about resistance in detail uh, because it's so important for you to understand what that stuff is. It'll make my job easier whenever we start talking about circuits that you're not scratching your head. What's the voltage again? I can't remember. I mean, I really need you to understand that before we get to anything else. Now, let's talk about some uh, general things that you probably heard growing up, uh, general uh, definitions, so to speak, that you probably heard. First one is DC and AC, uh, DC versus AC. Let's talk about that for just a second uh, because it's, you know, it's something that we need to make sure you understand. DC. This stands for direct current. Right? And uh, basically what it means is constant current flow. Basically, all of the batteries you've ever used in your life, the, the AAAs, the AA's, the 9-volts, watch batteries, I mean anything, that anything built into a, a little device that we call a battery always generates a direct current. 
It means that when you hook it up to the circuit, it's giving you a constant voltage at, at the source location, right? That's pushing current around. And because it's a constant voltage it's providing, the current that comes out is constant, never changes. Now, in reality, the battery is going to die down and it's going to get weaker and weaker. So the current does eventually bleed off. But I mean, if you take a snapshot and look at it, the current is a constant. It's called direct current. All right, now let me contrast that to AC, which I know you've heard of, and that's called alternating current. Alternating current. Uh, and this means, um, well, exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's a wall socket. And it means the current, for lack of a better word, moves back and forth. And this is really uh, actually much easier to understand what the what the purpose of a uh, with the a drawing here. So let's draw a quick little circuit like this. Now, normally we've been putting plus and minus, but here I'm just going to kind of put a little wave in here to kind of indicate to you that this is a uh, alternating current. And we'll get into all these symbols later, you know, uh, in detail. I'm just trying to get the idea uh, out to you. What this means, and this is a, a, great, a great model for what's happening in your wall socket when you plug something in, you know, into the wall. What happens is at first the current comes out this direction and flows this way, and then it starts to slow down, and then it goes back the other way, like this. And then it goes back the other way, and it goes back the other way. It literally alternates the direction of the current. If you could actually see the electricity coming out of your wall, like if you could, if you, I'm looking at a plug right now over there in the wall. If you can visualize a plug, you know, everybody kind of thinks and realizes there's electricity coming out. But if you could see the electricity, you would see the electricity racing out and then slowing down and then going right back into the wall and coming out the other way and then racing back into the wall and coming back the other way. And it alternates back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. How many times does it do that? Well, in the United States, it's 60 times a second, 60, uh, 60 hertz. That's a unit of frequency. That's how fast it's coming back and forth, 60 times every second. That electricity is switching directions, right? Now, you might say, I should say, the, the number one question you get when you explain alternating current and direct current is, why do we have a difference? Why do we have a difference? Well, the reason, mainly, is... Um, is a lot of history, actually. But truthfully, whenever you generate electricity at a power plant to feed houses, it's much easier to generate it as an alternating current. And uh, it's much easier to transmit it out to the homes as alternating current. And that goes into a lot of theory that I can't get into right now, but just trust me on that. It's a little bit easier. Um, you know, really, all of our power plants, whether they're gas or nuclear or coal or anything, all they do is generate a lot of heat, and that heat heats up steam usually, and that steam turns a generator. So all of our power plants, no matter how fancy, even the wind farms out there, they're just turning a generator. So since they're moving like this, the current that's generated actually alternates back and forth, and it comes directly because every time we generate electricity, the only way we really know how, except for solar panels, we're doing it by rotating a wire inside of a magnetic field, which is what's inside of a generator. Because of that motion of rotation is, is a direct result of how we get alternating current. And that's the, really the reason why the power plants do that. When we build a battery, it's a chemical reaction. It's either on or it's off. There's no motion inside of the battery, right? So it's just going to give you that constant deal, the constant current, the constant voltage. So that's the difference between DC and AC. In this class, we're going to focus on DC first. We're going to learn all the techniques of analyzing DC circuits. 
um, because really when you get to AC, it's once I show you the method, it's really not that different. So we're, we're going to do DC first, get really good at it, and then we're going to introduce the alternating current uh, mechanism. Just a couple of other definitions I want to get to real quick before we call it a day. Everybody's heard of this. What is an open circuit? What do you think an open circuit is? Uh, well, if you have a circuit, right? If you have a circuit, um, it's supposed to come all the way back to where it started. If you have an open circuit, it means somewhere along that path, it's broken, basically. So an open circuit would be if I had some kind of source here, like here, and then I had a break in it, make this break a little bigger, uh, then there's no more current flow. You cannot have current flow in an open circuit by definition. So this open here, this is what your wall switch does. When you flip the wall switch, it just breaks open the circuit so no electricity can flow anymore. That's what we call an open circuit. Now, let's also take a moment to talk about a short circuit. Short. Lots of people have heard of short circuit. Most people know that short circuit is not really a good thing, but a lot of people don't know what a short circuit really means. Um, when you think about it, if you have a circuit, you've got a source, and you're supplying energy or electricity to some load over here, we call it. Could be a light bulb, could be a fan, could be a anything, uh, right? So in general, for every circuit that's operating, we're going to have something over here that we're supplying power to, right? This could be anything at all. I'm going to put a giant box here. This could be, you know, a fan, for instance, right? And this electricity is coming out, this current is coming out into the fan, causing the fan to turn. And I'm leaving a lot of details out, but that's basically it. Now, inside of your circuit, let's say I somehow, a piece of wire kind of accidentally connects from here to here. Maybe you're working in a building. Let's say you're building the building. You're pulling the wire through the building, and somehow a stray piece of wire gets connected to two terminals like this. Or maybe inside of your lamp, you uh, develop a short circuit because the two wires that, that are supposed to go to the light bulb, maybe they start to touch on accident. Well, what happens is the electricity is coming out here and when it gets to this junction right here, it has a choice to go this way through the fan or this way. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think is going to be the lower resistance? Do you think it's going to be lower resistance for the electricity to go through this giant fan and spin something around? Or do you think it's going to be a lower resistance for this electricity to try to go through this little piece of wire that you put there? It's going to be much, much easier for the electricity to go through the wire. And so electricity is always going to do that. It always tries to go through the path of least resistance, just like you do when you're in traffic, right? You try to go the path of least resistance. So because of that, the electricity never even gets to the fan. So that's called a short circuit. It's called short because it kind of truncates the circuit or it shortens off the circuit. Uh, and it's very bad uh, for lots of reasons because whenever you start to get current going through a wire like this with no resistance or very low resistance, you can actually generate a lot of heat and it, you can actually cause a fire, actually. And that's why you have those circuit breakers outside of your home. Those are there to detect, if any short circuits happen, to detect the extra current, the increased current that comes from it, and to shut them off. If you get a, any kind of a short circuit in your washer or your dryer, maybe some wires start to touch, the current is going to start to go up really, really fast through this tiny little leg, and your circuit breaker is in, is in the circuit with that. It detects that, and then it shuts the circuit down. So that's basically how that, how that works. That is... Uh, about how all I want to talk about in this lesson. We've covered a lot of things. We haven't done any math. That's okay. Because 
you know, sometimes in the beginning, you really need to take some time to understand the fundamentals. So we learned about the circuit. You always have to have a complete circuit to have any electricity flowing. We learned about current. It's the flow of electrons in real life, but in, in, in a circuit analysis, we don't talk about that. We talk about the positive current going in the other direction as a symbol of I, all right, uh, in, the, in terms of our equations, right? The unit is amperes, or, or A. Of course, we can talk about milliamps, microamps, uh, kiloamps, things like that as well. Uh, and then we talked about the voltage, which is related. The voltage is the push that pushes the electric current around in the circuit. The higher the voltage, then the more push you have, the more current you're going to end up getting because you're pushing, you're pushing through with more force, for lack of a better word. Right? The units is a voltage that we talk about, or of course you have millivolts, microvolts, etc. Uh, and then we talked about resistance, which is integral to all that. That is sort of a property of the circuit, or the property of the wire, the property of the components. And it literally tries to oppose the uh, electric current. The unit is the ohm, which is the capital omega here. Of course, you could have milliohms, microohms, kiloohms with that guy, just like you have for the others. And then we talked about some other random definitions that people have heard over the years of growing up. Direct current DC, alternating current AC. This guy is usually coming from a battery, some constant current source, usually a chemical reaction is giving you a constant voltage, constant current coming out all the time. Alternating current comes out of your wall. The reason it's alternating is because it's easier to generate because you have rotating generators and you have easier transmission to the homes. There's a lot of theory in that, but that's basically the, the deal. And both are, you know, both are electricity. The fact that it alternates doesn't really mean much. I mean, your, your light bulb, you don't see it flickering but the electricity is actually going through your light bulb back and forth 60 times every second. You don't see it because it's so fast. So don't get too wrapped up or hung up on the difference here. They're both electricity. They both deliver energy. And then we talked about open circuit. You have a circuit where you literally take a piece of scissors and cut it open. No electricity can flow anymore. And a short circuit is when you have an operating circuit that you, that you um, accidentally bridge or connect two pieces across together and it basically causes the electricity to not even go into the load at all. So the load stops working, you get tons of current built up here, and it can actually lead to smoke and fire if you let it go, and that's why we have those circuit breakers in our homes. So that's what we want to cover in this section. The title was Voltage, Current, and Resistance. It's so important to understand, so make sure and watch this until you feel pretty comfortable with it. The next few sections, I want to do some more background stuff. We'll talk about taking an overview of, of the circuit components out there, and then we'll do another lesson on, on what we call Ohm's Law, which in mathematical terms relates uh, resistance, current, and voltage together. And I promise you, Ohm's Law is so simple that you know, you'll, you'll, it'll just boggle your mind. It's very, very simple to understand. And then once we get those foundation things going on, then we can really start diving into some real real circuits and looking at how the current's going to move through the branches, how they're going to sum together, what's going to be the value of the voltage here, the voltage there, and then we can get into some more complicated circuit components like capacitors and inductors and much later even what we call transistors and diodes and things like that and you'll be introduced slowly but surely over time to this beautiful thing I think that we have in the 21st century called you know electric circuits. So the nice thing about it is you can learn this stuff, you can you know, academically understand it. It's good for your career and things if that's what you plan to go into. But also, you can take a trip to the store, buy a few components once you know what you're doing, and you can build a radio if you want to. 
You can build a blinking light if you want to. You can build an alphanumeric display if you want to. So it's one of the few things that you can really learn that once you understand it, you can really go out there and build it. If you learn about nuclear power plants, they're amazing, but you're not going to be able to go build a nuclear power plant. If you learn about Einstein's theory of relativity, it's amazing. I love that stuff, but I'm not going to be able to really test it myself. But with circuits, once you understand it and learn it, you can actually play around with it. And that's what I find so fascinating about it. So I hope I've kindled your interest a little bit. Stay with me. We're going to go through the sections and, and dive into all of these circuit analysis techniques. I'll try to make them as simple as possible. But you do need to practice your problems, practice the problems that we present here, and also the extra problems that are in your textbook. on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to check out other artists that will be performing at the Berkeley Anywhere concert series. Thank you again and enjoy.